Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to Streets Ahead, your podcast dedicated to all things cycling, walking and wheeling in the UK and beyond. I'm Laura Laker, it says here. Brilliant. I'm Got- Ned Bolting. And I'm oh. Adam Tranter. Oh, I'm, no. I'm, the, I'm the only person who is actually the person that they are. <laughs> I should have said I'm Adam Tranter. You're the yeah. only authentic voice here. Well, uh, Laura, I kind of know this because I've just had a coffee with you ahead of the recording, but what you've been up to, book stuff? Yeah, I, I've, um, I learned to ride no hands. Oh yes, you did. that's a mm, big achievement. Yeah. Just happened one day. I was just riding along and I'm busy brain and I just sat up and then it happened like magic. It's like the hand of E.T. And it's not hard actually, is it? No, it's not very hard. It's quite hard on a Brompton. Is it? Yeah, it's it's very hard on a Brompton little wheel. But that's such a shame that Look Mum No Hands, the cafe, has now closed down because otherwise you could have swanned in there. And sort of like taken ownership of it. Finally got myself one of their little caps. Yeah. Yeah. I might want one of their jumpers. Oh, is that? Yeah, yeah, it's a little one no hands jumper. Did you pay for it? Yeah, I did. Oh, I got okay. a discount. Um, I went to Bristol for family fun, and I found myself taking photos of cycle lanes and stuff like Standard. that. Standard. Really interesting, actually, and really problematic. Bristol has quite high levels of cycling, which is, you know, is obviously a good thing. Yeah. They've obviously gone through the stage of, like, doing the whole cycling infrastructure thing because they've built loads of it. But the really challenging thing is that they've built it in a way that it looks like pavement so they built it as part of the public realm so it looks beautiful yeah but it's sort of too clever yeah so most people don't realize it's a cycle lane so So basically you've developed all this kind of conflict yeah Yeah. basically people you know i I, you know i know what cycle lanes look like and it was i found myself going oh i'm in a cycle lane yeah so uh yeah it was quite interesting but obviously massive high levels of cycling it's kind of seen as a cycling city yeah but it's had this kind of so no, it's not a cycling city because of the infrastructure. Um, in spite and, of it. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. weird that, you know, 30 years ago when I lived in Germany, in Hamburg, when I was a young man, there's a lot of cycling infrastructure where they rely on shared mm. pavements. 
like we do here lots, don't we? So there's a lot of bike lanes that look a bit like pavements and are kind of our pavements. And I remember I certainly wasn't a cyclist back then and it never even crossed my mind to get on a bike. So I was pure pedestrian and I used to get infuriated by Germans sort of yeah. like ding a ling a ling a ling to get rid you know, oh, to get uh, pedestrians out of the way. In fact, it kind of like maddened me. But now I, I was mm. in exactly the same city recently and kind of like looked at it from the other Yeah, because I was on a... I think it's, it's funny. Japan that they culturally allow cycling on the pavements um, and it's just totally culturally accepted. Yeah. There's no conflict. Like maybe there is some conflict, but it's just sort of seen as, as a totally normal thing to, to do. Mm. Just culturally. Just after you. No, after you. Yeah. It's just very polite. Anyone going to ask what I've been up to? Ah, what have you been um, up to, Ned? Okay, thanks, thanks. Um, not much really, to be honest, except... except <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> except yesterday I went on a, a walk up Deptford Creek in the mud. Oh, I saw that. Tide. I saw that. Oh, it was one the of the, honestly, if you live in London and can get there, it's one of the best things. I, I mean, it's amazing. I've lived here 25 years and walked past the creek or cycled past the creek for all that time and didn't realise you could just pull on a pair of waders and walk up it at low oh. tide. It's amazing. Are you supervised? Is there risk yeah, of quicksand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a guy called Nick who's been working in conservation there in the creek for decades and he's got a real interesting take on... He said at one point in the in the 1990s they decided to clear it up and they mm. took out 400 shopping trolleys from the creek. Oh, my God. And then they did a bit of evidence. They kind of looked at what happened to the young fish stock there and when the shopping trolleys had been taken out, the fish stock dropped by half no. because the young fish use the, the, the shopping trolleys to hide. So it's become part of, so they now leave the shopping trolleys in no way. and nature kind of takes them over, which is kind of beautiful. Mm. But he explained all that while we were standing next to a lime bike that was inverted kind of vertically <laughs> into the mud. And he, at the end of it, he said, we'll probably take the lime bike out. Yep. So the battery. Yeah. We're going to battery and all that. Anyway, that's oh. what we've been up to. Let's introduce our guest. This time we have with us Polly Herbert. Hello, Polly. Hi. A solicitor who represents the loved ones of those killed and seriously injured in road traffic collisions. Polly's very kindly come all the way down from Manchester to our London studio, as I'd like to refer to it, to join us today. Now, Polly represented the family of Frankie Jules Huff, a pregnant mother of two, who was killed by a speeding driver who was filming himself driving in excess of 100 miles an hour in May. That's shocking. I suppose that's our starting point, though, Polly. Can you put the sort of detail in around this kind of quite extraordinary case? Uh, yes. Um, Frankie had uh, her two children with her in the car, was pregnant with her third, and also had her nephew in the car. It was just a family day. It was a Saturday, and she was going to her eldest football match. So very short journey, about 15 minutes, had said goodbye to some loved ones, was meeting other family there on the sports pitch, just had a flat tyre, pulled over, as you would expect, on the motorway and hadn't even got to the point of um, asking for any any help when the defendant who'd been driving his vehicle for some considerable time along the M66 and also supporting roads ploughed into her vehicle at approximately 92 miles per hour. Now, before the collision actually happened, there was quite a lot of dash cam footage taken by other members of the public, but more frighteningly taken by the defendant himself on a handheld mobile phone. So he'd been driving, weaving in and out of traffic, undertaking, overtaking, using slip roads to undertake two lanes of traffic, tailgating cars. We had dash cam footage from people, but also lots of witness statements saying how aggressive and scary his driving was. 
some people had submitted this to the police, but also had said it was an accident waiting to happen. And one of the things that I would like any of your listeners from this podcast to take away is that reference, that word accident. It's very, very emotive. As Calvin, the partner of Frankie, would say, if we could avoid using that, it wasn't an accident waiting to happen. It was completely avoidable. But he was maintaining this, going up to speeds of 123 miles an hour on more than one occasion before he lost control ultimately hit the crash barrier and then crashed into Banky's vehicle. Crikey. And the defendant's name was Adil Iqbal. Yes. Um, what happened to him? Um, well, the long and short of it is he's got a custodial sentence now. He had a custodial sentence at the first hearing, but unfortunately the family had to appeal that as it was considered to be unduly lenient. But behind that, you could look at this and examine what years he actually had. But for Calvin and the rest of the family, this isn't about years. It's not about measuring punishment in years. It's about sending a very important signal out to people who drive like this. There is, it's not even an underbelly. It's there on social media. It's on TikTok. It's on Facebook, Snapchat. You can see there are these people who routinely drive like this to get kicks, to get likes. And so what Calvin and the family were hoping for was that Effectively, the full force of the law was used. And if there is a life sentence there, in circumstances such as this, where they've taken such a prolonged, aggressive manner in their driving that's dangerous and reckless, that should really see the full force of a life sentence. Because there's a degree of kind of intent, I suppose. This isn't a moment of... This isn't a little flash-in-the-pan moment. There's no no red mist. That's that's where that word accident comes in, right? Is because all these things are decisions their outcomes are the decisions that have been made an accident is something oh just one of those things and um this individual had the opportunity to not do those things several times for a long period of time yeah so it's willful but without getting so early on into the technicals of it the law has a kind of strange approach to careless driving dangerous driving what we would count as you know this wasn't careless driving but there are some offenses that you know, look like they're dangerous, but in the law they are careless, yeah. for example. And for me, a careless thing is, you know, a lapse of concentration, concentration, yeah. not having five pints and running somewhere. You can't carelessly have five pints, but in the law you can. So I'm sure we're going to get into technicalities of it, but a, a lot of people, and certainly for me, you know, I see, I see these cases online, a lot of us do, and we're just kind of even myself with you know having some degree of authority being able to do something locally feel almost powerless and the thing that frightens me in my region is that I don't know when the next collision will be so therefore it's totally out of control there's no element of of, of control in it but I think what gets a lot of people I see in the comments of the, the the case online is that the reality of what sentencing is provided and what people expect to be provided is deeply out of proportion and I wonder what you think to overall how society treats road crime and road violence versus other forms of violence that is done with a similar level of intent in this in this in this case we should probably just say because I'm not sure that Polly actually made it explicit that, that he was sentenced to 12 years initially originally initially, initially. initially. and then on appeal that was increased to 15, increased to 15. Yeah. and what was the driving ban in this case? Uh, the driving ban has been increased now so I think it's 15 years in total which will run 
concurrent to the right. the life uh, so sorry get, to the sentence yeah mm. so he'll get out of prison and he'll be able to get back behind a wheel mm. at some point mm. yeah yeah and i think yeah. the question a lot of people had for this case is this is and i think the judge in fact said this is that this is the one the, the worst cases of causing death by dangerous driving has ever been seen possibly in history and the maximum sentence now is life imprisonment for death by dangerous driving. That was thanks to campaigning done by Theresa May. Yes. And if this does not warrant a life sentence, what would you have to do to get one? I think that, that links into that question, isn't it, about how we perceive road violence compared to other forms. Yeah, and I think it's it's what's socially acceptable and what's really important. There's, there's various strands to that, really. In terms of how we view road crime... I suppose the way that Calvin, Frankie's partner, would suggest it's almost like a scenario with gateway drugs. And if you look at a teenager experimenting with cannabis or, gosh, helium balloons as it is now, or whatever, Mm. the the local, it's that gateway of going in to do more more and more offences. You could potentially take that lens and use it for road crime. So it may start out with somebody just showing off in front of their mates and instead of doing 30 they're doing 35 and instead of stopping on amber they're actually going through red and it's those little things of pushing more boundaries that instead of being sat next to someone in the car when they're doing it why aren't we calling them out because it's impacting us it's a risk to our safety as much as it is to theirs and other road users so I think there's an element of how do we ensure that future generations make it socially unacceptable, like they have done with drink driving. If we think of the campaigns that they had in the 80s, Mungo Jerry, you know, was on the, the radio and it was, what was it, summer summertime or something that was used for that ad campaign, but it resonated with people of my generation. Mm. My dad would go out on a Sunday lunch and would have two pints and then drive. Mm. And I would call him out and I'd feel confident calling him out about that. Mm. My dad doesn't do that anymore. Mm. Many people don't do that anymore because it's socially unacceptable Mm. to do that, but it's taken generational change. So I think we need the generational change. We need to be advocating for younger people, educating younger people, which is something Calvin's really passionate about. Then we have to have a look at why is it acceptable? Why are we accepting road crime and violence at this level? When you look at the numbers, five per day, you know, there's a police officer that's knocking on five people's front doors to tell them that their loved one has been killed. Why society do we think that's acceptable? The top of the five killed every day on the roads is 60 serious injuries, yes. which is people with life-changing injuries. 60? Yeah. yeah. Every day. I think it's one every 17 seconds or something ridiculous that they've equated it to um, in terms of the... Well, that, that can't be right. Total actually. injuries, potentially. Total, injury, yeah. total injuries. Slight injuries yeah. as well. Yeah, slight injuries as well. And, and they're often not reported no. to police, so they don't make the stats. No. But yeah. I think, you know, increasingly, as car driver and I love my car I'm not a cyclist because I got knocked off a bike when I was seven and I still haven't got the psychological ability to go back onto a bike fair enough it's like being bitten by a dog yes yeah um (laughs) but I do at centre parks but that's my limit um and I'm I love walking everywhere absolutely love walking everywhere but overwhelmingly we all all these different road users bike pedestrian Mm. car that just seems to think that we are more important than the other person. I think that's what it boils down to. We're always in a rush and we have the right of way, no matter if we actually do in reality. So we're tapping into so much, I think, mm. that we mm. actually need to change, there not is, just attitude to road crime. Yeah, there is a real cultural problem. And I hear people who come over from Europe, maybe for the first time to the UK, and they're 
quite shocked actually at the standard of driving sometimes and and feel like they're about to get run down at any moment they're sort of crossing side streets people just drive at you and yeah honk at you and it's really quite it's kind of astonishing when you step back and think in any other field of life we wouldn't behave in this way but for some reason when we're on the yeah. roads yeah i was quite taken with how you outlined that though polly because you didn't just say this is something that drivers do this this is something that we oh, all no, do as we, we get do. To, you know and i think that going yeah. back going back to my experiences of living abroad and traveling a, a lot abroad i think we're also probably quite an aggressive nation of jaywalkers for better or worse oh, hold, hold up hold <laughs> you, you oh, reach a controversial pattern <laughs> controversial pattern are we not no, are well, we no quite... jaywalking is a is an, an invented construct, construct right, invented you know by what I mean. the automobile what should I industry say? What, what should i oh yeah i forgot about that yeah perhaps you're right um, God, remind just us why... to make sure well yeah. i don't know people we, people that feel like we can cross the road when we would like to cross all right the road. We, we have quite a yeah we have quite a lawless attitude to that or no no, no but the, no but the, <laughs> there, is we'll no law. The <laughs> there is no law against crossing yeah. the, the road in fact they might even have right of way depending on how they do it um, yeah but i want to go back to my experience of living in germany where if you dared to cross uh, at a pedestrian crossing where there were no cars coming on a red light you know mm. for the pedestrians mm. you would get loudly tutted at by everybody oh, really? else who was where oh yeah it was really frowned upon in fact you get harangued what sort of message does that send out to the kids mm. and i'd kind of go don't care gonna cross the road anyway so i think we are quite i think we're all quite um just interested in our own agenda yes. at getting from mm. a to b and that's yeah. So away from self- the jaywalking yeah, selfishness yeah. potentially that was, that was um yeah, yeah and, pro- and and i'm sure when i'm on a bike i have certain behaviors that probably mm. would fit yeah. that as well there's a there's a different uh, except the difference is two tons of metal well yeah there's a difference in a in, in couple of respects isn't there because one is you know when when enforcement is limited as well and a lot of this comes down to police enforcement and how police handle this they have to enforce those that pose the most danger statistically that would that's just what you do when you have limited resource it was actually Westminster police that have you know said in the past that you know all road users probably offend at the same rate but proportionately obviously the damage that they can cause is different and therefore when you have limited resources you, you focus on the ones that are most likely to cause real harm and then there's another thing that you said about kind of like we all do it and I wanted, just being honest, I wanted to sort of chip in and say, this is different though. But then I remembered something I've also said, so I'm contradicting myself, like when I think about it, is actually there are a lot of people who die in road collisions and are seriously injured, who are killed or seriously injured by, dare I say, inverted commas, law-abiding motorists. And they're not obviously law-abiding, but like, you know, to coin the phrase that maybe a newspaper would use, they're normal people who might check their phone or they might do you know they might speed or or whatever and when i had all these problems that i wanted to tackle in the west midlands you know when families were coming and saying look they've got to do something here i instinctively wanted to go well we should come down on a like a ton of bricks on the people that are you know racing on tiktok and the people who are taking drugs and driving and we should but it's right to challenge everybody because we all have a part to play in this and, and actually the results can be as, as difficult and as, as dangerous. You know, people die from lapses of concentration and checking a phone and a bit of speeding. It's not all the extreme things that you saw in no. the case that you worked on. And I think that's what's really hard. There's a lot of public interest and there's a lot of outrage in relation to this particular case because so many people go, well, clearly... I would never make that choice. I wouldn't do what he did. I wouldn't be doing those manoeuvres on the motorway. So 
why would you equate this to what mm. I would possibly do just mm. creeping over 30 or just creeping over 40? It's that whole thing of, guys, we're all there to share the road. And I love my car. I love doing track days. I love driving fast on track days. Frankie's father was on a track day when this actually happened. So there are times and places to get your kicks. Mm. And it's not pushing the boundaries on a road where there are pedestrians, cyclists and other road users. It's just we've got to get to that point where we see travel as a route to A to B in the, in the safest possible way. Mm. And unfortunately, there are so many cars on the road. You know, we, we just have to change our mindset. Mm. Yeah. And there's the societal, I guess, mindset shift on a societal level. But then there's also how we treat and punish people who do these things, whether it's creeping above 30 miles an hour in 30 zone mm -hmm. or whether it's driving as this defendant did. And I wonder how, what you see in the, you're a civil solicitor, you yeah. and what, what you see and how you see these cases being dealt with and, and how, I don't know, frustrating or otherwise you find this. Really frustrating because aside from the criminal side of things, there's the, the civil court as well for the, for the families that I help. So and that's sort of... The, the litigation side, the, yeah. the insurance claims, the money that the family would get for their bereavement, that may be there a clumsy is, way of yeah, describing there is it. No, there's, there's no compensation for the death no. of a loved one. It's completely impossible to put any kind of price on that. And what the, the civil courts look at is the, the financial consequences mm. of somebody's death. But to give you an example, I'm routinely in people's front rooms who have been asked for some civil support and some guidance, and they're not really given necessarily the support for the criminal side of things as well. Um, so I'm sat there having to explain to them how they actually won't get justice through the criminal cause. And I will... This is what you tell people. Very, very early on, because you've got to manage people's expectations. They're in crisis and they're vulnerable. And obviously you have to gauge the people that are in front of you at the time. But I think you need to be realistic with families and not give them that false hope that they're going to get an outcome that they think is equivalent to justice through the criminal court. And I also say that for the civil side as well. And in Frankie's case, Calvin, her partner, they'd been together for nearly two years and she was pregnant with their baby. They'd had the gender reveal ceremony. They were talking about houses, looking at properties that they could blend their family and move in together. The civil court does not recognise him as a parent. It doesn't mm, recognise him as God. a partner. And there is legislation yeah. still now which refers to illegitimate children. Yeah. And, you know, there, there is so much stacked mm. against families in navigating an antiquated system, let alone are their voices heard, are they properly supported. I can honestly say no. Having dealt with this kind of road traffic collision for the last 20 years... The support that families are now receiving is woeful compared to what they received 20 years ago. Mm. And is this, this isn't presumably, well, it's, I know it's not just the case for victims of road traffic collisions. Mm. This is across the criminal justice system. I think it sounds like just layered on top of that is the fact that people aren't getting justice in any way with road collisions because of these problems. Yeah, but it's it's also when you look at the sentencing, but if you also look at just the way that information is communicated or the way that they're handled at court, you know, I've gone to cases where it was particularly difficult in COVID times when there was a lot of restrictions and, and a lot of burden on the courts, but I would turn up with families and there would be 
no witness support there or no victim support there. They've been in the same corridor as the defendant's family waiting to go in with Mm. no separation whatsoever. And you're walking around court saying, can I just please have a room where I can take these people? Now, I'm a civil solicitor. I'm not even really meant to be there. I'm not a criminal solicitor. I'm not CPS. Why are you there? Because I support my families no matter what. Mm. I think they they need someone in their corner. And if that has to be me, then that, that's what I will do. They, I've gone to coroner's courts where there is nobody there. Not one person there. And the family are sat in an empty coroner's court on their own. No usher, nobody, until the coroner then comes in. So these families, you know, on no matter how you look at it, they are not given the adequate support, let alone the sentencing at the end of it. Wow. And, and some of this will be familiar to anyone who's read The Secret Barrister, which is very revealing about yeah. the criminal justice the criminal justice system yeah. and how badly that is funded and how badly that fails people. And the barristers are very poorly paid themselves. And, yeah. and it's just people are exodusing out of that field professionally. Yeah. And I presume it's the same... Um, you see this as, as well. Yeah, and I think um, the government has recently brought in legislation as well to cut the costs of civil fees as well, civil legal fees. So potentially families would be uh, expected to navigate this on their own. But uh, we're committing, my firm's committing to doing a lot of pro bono work to help those families through. But yeah, it's um, speaking with the Attorney General's office and the barrister in this particular case at the Court of Appeal he didn't have anything positive really to say. He was exceptional at talking to Calvin and gave him a lot of time explaining why the sentencing wasn't where it should be and why the life sentence hasn't been provided. But effectively, it was hands up, the system's broken. I I can appreciate that this would be sort of secondhand information, but you're obviously much closer to to this case and generally the victims than, than, than we are. Yeah. What was the reasoning between not getting a, a life sentence and how was, how can that, yeah, I, I can't get my head around it. I don't think anyone can, so I'm, I'm interested to know how it was communicated. No, and they have um, three different grading structures, A, B and C, basically, a simple way of putting it. And they, A is the worst grading structure you can get, so it, you should attract the maximum sentence at that point. But the, the way the guidelines are drafted is it's been increased to 8 to 18 years for the maximum sentence. So he started off at the 18 years and then added on, and he could have potentially added on more for aggravating features. But according to the Attorney General's office and the barrister on the day, it was very much due to the fact that he hadn't done this before. And it was explicitly spoken to the family that really the only scenario they could see a life sentence actually being handed down is if someone had already killed somebody in a collision, served some prison time, come back out again and then killed somebody again. That's a pretty high bar. Yes, it is. I think it's really disappointing, though, to a lot of victims and road safety charities who have campaigned to get a life sentence to dangerous driving to actually now have that realisation of, I thought we won this a couple of years ago. The legislation here removed intent. It removed intent. So to the best of your knowledge, has a life sentence been handed down? No. Not on? No. How long has this been on the statute books then? It was passed in 22, but enforcement came in in July 23. So we're very early. It's It's very new. And that's why there was a lot of media attention in this particular case, because I think there was a hope that this would be the first First life sentence that was passed down. Yeah. 
And there's a massive amount of disappointment, like you were saying before, Adam, that actually all three judges in the course of appeal concurred that this is the worst case they have ever seen. Yet still that life sentence doesn't happen. Mm. And would it be fair to say that this is the the longest sentence for death by dangerous driving currently there? Yeah. I mean, I think when you look at the, um, you know, the headlines of so many years, what you've got to remember as well is that it starts off at a certain level and then there's mitigating features. Mm. And I think that's what families also find very difficult is the the mitigating features. Uh, This gentleman, he worked in his father's gym and there was a, a group of disadvantaged children that were brought to the gym one day and he helped them out with the equipment. And there was a letter from that person who has organized that trip to say that he was of good character and that's taken into account i read one the other day a case where the person had killed somebody but it, it was stated in mitigation that he had a dog and that was that was seen as as a sort of mm. valid to yeah. put forward as as a reason why that person's sentence might not you know might need to be reduced or might need to be taken into consideration i think that probably just taps into how we see this is a kind of you know, driving almost as a right and, and yeah. uh, you know, not not treating it as well, weird. I don't understand crime. the dog thing. So that because this person had a dog. He would have to look after the dog. So could the judge take into consideration that he he did some charity work? I'm being a little yeah, bit yeah, flippant, yeah. but also yeah. not flippant because it's a dog. Uh, the guy did some charity work and he owned a dog. And at the, you know, the sentencing, his barrister put forward the case that, could you go easy on him because he's got a dog to look after? And this is when someone has been killed in front, of, probably said in front of the family watching there. Well, well, talk it is. Yeah, we I had mean, a good one last week. I say a good one. This is awful the way to describe it, but a pedestrian was killed by a driver half past six in the morning. She was driving at speeds up to seventy six miles per hour and a thirty when she killed him. And the defendant counsel for her suggested that because it was during COVID and it was quite quiet on the roads, that really it wasn't as bad. It shouldn't really be seen as excessive speed because it was, you know, it was COVID and it was quiet on the road. And, it, you know, it's just incredulous oh. that, that I know that he's there to do his job. This isn't a judgment on the barrister at all, but the fact that he even stood up and thought there might be sway of a judge You have to do that with a straight face. Yeah. Societally, there is... There is the groundwork in place as a society to be able to make those arguments and for people to nod along. Yeah, levels of speeding we saw during COVID kind of um, Mm. align with that, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, there was some quite. This is all really bleak. It is bleak. It's kind of darkly funny, but also absolutely awful. Yeah. Is there evidence to suggest that if these uh, sentencing guidelines were properly enforced? as let, let's hope they, they will be in the future, that will act as a deterrent? Or are we trying to appeal to a group of people in society for whom there is no deterrent doesn't really kind of like hit the sides. I think we have to take as many lines of attack as we mm. possibly can. Mm. And for for Calvin, he and, and Road Peace, I work very closely with that charity. Yeah. It's about educating younger people to make it socially unacceptable. It's about talking to social media companies to say, what on earth are you doing putting these videos on there? They should be taken down and reporting right, them. Right. It's about advising people, I've got a dash cam in my car. I've never had a dash cam in my mm. car, but after seeing what evidence was used in that case, yep. I've now got a dash cam. I know where I can send that to with local police forces. We can all do that. If you've got the financial means, do it. Put it in your car. I certainly feel safer. 
in terms of deterring uh, deterring these people there's been many years of many campaigns from victims who have all told incredibly sad stories and this is still happening and it's still getting worse so what calvin would like to do is actually change that message if you're not going to think about frankie if you're not going to think about my unborn daughter or the three kids that were in the vehicle then at least think about what you're potentially risking. You're potentially risking going to prison mm. on a life sentence. Mm. And that's the last bit of the battle, I think, that needs to actually change. And unfortunately, when this legislation was put forward and was seen as a win for victims of road crime, this has been lost in translation because we're being told that actually it's not going to get handed down. So I think that needs to be looked at and that's where the gap mm. is now. In terms of the deterrence, one of the things I'm finding very hard to get my head around is the driving bans, basically. You know, you can get a driving ban handed down alongside a sentence. Typically, you might serve a sentence if you go to jail. And if you don't, then, you know, there are many cases, without being specific, you know, where someone has killed another road user, a vulnerable road user, and ended up with, you know, like a two or three year driving ban and the thing that I learned recently was that those driving bans don't get more serious with reoffending. so if you commit greater crimes you can get a greater driving ban but you can't just for the sake of it's the fourth time you've been banned sir you still get like a ban a year at a time or two years at a time and that person is clearly not following you know if anyone else showed that much content to the punishments they've been given in any other form of law it would get more serious yeah yeah, but with with driving it's kind of like it's almost a joke that they're going to do it again and it never gets any more serious but then another part of my brain goes well if you give them a lifetime ban they're not going to follow it because they've shown several times that they don't follow the ban but i'm interested to get your thought on the other parts of Obviously, it's not just about the sentence and, and sometimes about rehabilitation. Sometimes it's about what they can and can't do. And, and also societally, that driving is seen as a as a right, not a privilege. And therefore, you can't take someone's right to drive away, even if they have killed a, a mother. You know, that person will be able to drive again in 15 years' time. I just can't get my head around that. I'm hoping for someone who works it. You'll be able to tell me that, you know, maybe it will be better. Maybe it will change. No. Maybe there's a reason. <laughs> No. no, I don't think so. And I think, you know, when you tap into quite a lot of the, this discussion online, you unfortunately fall into the camps of, well, you either hate motorists or you're on the motorist side. Well, actually, we can all come together and have some common ground here. If you cannot drive a vehicle safely, why on earth should you just be able to then get your license back? Why isn't it subject to further testing or further restrictions, for example? And I think... One of the the matters, actually, that Frankie's dad brought up, and it kind of links into the the licensing point, is um, in this particular case, the judge kept on coming back to the fact that the defendant was so young, so young he didn't fully appreciate the consequences of what he was doing. Now, there's no graded licenses at the moment, which says, well, if you're between the ages of 17 and 25, you're only allowed to go out between these hours, or Mm. you're only allowed a vehicle with this kind of capacity. So could we possibly investigate that? So 
if it's so hard for politicians to get their heads around or the general public to get their heads around disqualification, why can't we look at different retesting or different courses to take or different graded licenses, mm. which I'm not saying that people should get their license back like that, but we've got to be realistic in terms of where could we potentially take this campaigning and, and a happy medium for the moment could be, well, okay, graded licenses then. This is something that Detective Superintendent Andy Cox has been calling for, yes. for some time as well as an enter exceptional hardship claims. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because young men are disproportionately responsible for serious collisions yeah under 25 yeah we're just so soft on this i just i'm not i have to catch myself because sometimes i feel like i'm you know like capital punishment or, or whatever and you go you go well about half the population when polled say that we should have the death penalty well there is so, that so what i don't what what i was we saying know that referendums yeah. are wonderful things no, not quite <laughs> yeah but what i was saying i guess is i don't want to be that person that's saying oh yes we should do this and because it's an easy thing to say you've got to kind of look at it but but it's the ban that's important we, yeah isn't it? we're so soft on it and we give people so many second chances as well not through the driving ban but in the, in the case that you worked on i have to do a bit of jargon busting but yeah the the defendant had something called a section 59 yes. notice which yes is basically when a when a, a police officer witnesses someone driving dangerously, mm. they can issue a Section 59 notice, which is a kind of a, a, a bit of an ASBO warning kind of thing. And if they are caught again, mm. they can have their, their vehicle seized. Uh, and in the West Midlands, where we've got a high court injunction, they can be sent to court for breaching the high court injunction. So part of me thinks it's it's quite a good thing because it gives the police more powers to tackle this. But then the other part of me thinks, well... They've already shown that they're not capable of driving sensibly once, and we give them a kind of letter that gives them a second chance. And in this case, that person got a second chance. You know, they were driving dangerously. A police officer saw that person driving dangerously in another totally separate incident. And if we'd taken it seriously then, perhaps the second incident wouldn't have been able to to occur. Is Perhaps, but perhaps. I think you have to have a look at the type of person that would... N- that would drive in this manner. Mm. It's not going to be isolated in terms of they're not going to be the type of person that just goes out one day and goes, I'm going to drive at 123 miles an hour. Mm, sure. They're going to mm. probably be quite naughty yeah. in other build areas and like, build up yeah. to it. And so, like you say, it is that difficulty of going, well, do you throw the book at them then? And is it actually going to prevent something or are they going to circumnavigate around it? anyway Mm, mm. and I was with a family a couple of years ago who um, their daughter was killed walking to school and the defendant was driving without insurance without a license without MOT brakes didn't work properly on his vehicle and he collided with her as she was crossing the road he left her and drove immediately to a car mechanics garage and tried to get his windscreen repaired when they said no and turned him away, he went to another garage and said, oh, some teenagers had just been throwing bricks at my windscreen. And we went through all of this, no remorse whatsoever shown by this defendant, had the custodial sentence, had the driving ban. And the family said, it just feels hollow. Mm. He's, he's, whatever happens, he's going to get out of prison and he'll do it again. What, so what did he, what was he sentenced to, Polly? 14 years. Concurrent driving ban. Yeah. Back in the very yeah. 14 years. Yeah. And it's it's very difficult because it might make a difference to us sat around this table and a lot of your listeners because we go, oh, mm. my God, we've done something terrible mm. inadvertently. Oh, my God, we'd never, ever do that again. Mm. But it's not penetrating his world. No. 
Exactly. That's where the social media stuff is really, I, yeah. is like, really I, challenging. Got, I was going to raise a thing. I'm sitting here for four or five minutes wondering if I should even raise because it's kind of like such a complicated can of worms. And it impinges on all sorts of really quite toxic arguments and difficult debates. But is there a tech solution to legitimate driving somewhere down the line in the future? I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah, because it is. It plays into into ULA's conspiracy Mm. theories, you know, but facial recognition at every street corner. Who's that driving there? Can we scan their face as they Mm. drive past? Are they, you know... I mean, if I go and hire a car, which is the only time I do drive because I don't own a car, I literally have to hand over my driving license and they check my face to see whether my Mm. face matches. So this kind of exists, doesn't it, anyway? Yeah, I think... Um, uh, I'm just going to say it. Because um, you've said it, yeah. Um, you can, you know, why I hesitated, yeah. right? So, so when people, again, not an expert in this area, but but obviously, electronic tagging is a thing, <laughs> right? It, but it is electronic. When people leave prison on yes, license, they get electronic thing. tag. Yes. There's obviously the probation service would tell you that also they can't keep tabs, and the police can't keep tabs on everybody anyway. Yeah. But the technology would be there that if you have a driving ban and you've committed an offence, and you've maybe been released from prison on licence, but you're still banned, then a electronic tag could inform the police, for example, if you were travelling above 25 miles an hour, for example. As your iPhone does as, when it as says, your iPhone uh, does uh, when are it, you driving? Or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now that raises all sorts of, you know, sort of questions, but people have shown that they can't adhere to driving bans, and it's not like we're stopping people who are playing by the rules it's really people have only shown that they cannot play by those rules and and again so i keep coming back to that tech solution as well in my head yeah such a challenging one isn't it, it is. and there is it also is. the the kind of i don't like the idea sorry no, i think the the, yeah. the, the, the the tagging seems like potentially quite an interesting avenue to explore i don't mm. like the facial recognition thing i must admit mm. i mm. Instinctively, and it involves I, you retrofitting cars and stuff like that, which is just totally impossible. Whereas, y- yes, you put the onus on that's you know, in, the individual. Potentially, that's interesting. yeah. Um, mm. What do you feel about that, Polly or Laura? Or, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, electronic yeah. tagging does it does exist already, and um, and I guess you get a curfew. So I don't, I don't know if it's that different. But. I just, I think whatever you do, that there will be a workaround. The criminal fraternity yeah. are a criminal fraternity for mm. a reason and they will I mean that's not to say don't hold out hope mm. but I think you know when you're looking at enforcement you've kind of lost the battle the the battle very much for me is prevention and that prevention has to be through education of for younger sure. people yeah and you know going back to what Calvin wants to do it it's road safety education within schools, but actually he's starting from the very basics of respect. Mm. Just the very basics. He wants to go in and teach people respect on our roads. That would be road user, be a walker, a, a cyclist or a, a car user. You know, it, it's all about that preventative because by the time you're thinking about tagging people, you've lost. Society's lost if that's what we're doing. Yeah. And there is already yeah. a kind of civil lever as well, an insurance lever in the form of black boxes. And yeah. I know that young yeah. men particularly whose insurance is very high, insurance premiums are very high. If they get a black box fitted, then the insurer will insure them for less. And that can be quite motivating. And I have heard of youngsters who've unplugged the black box, been contacted by the insurer <laughs> And then gone else, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to adhere to it because they're basically having to drive a certain way, but it does seem to, it does seem to be effective. Yeah. Mm. The education things, uh, yeah, again, very hard to get under the skin of, right? Because 
there is form for this in terms of, as you say, with drink driving and all the things, you know, people have changed societal, mm-hmm. but there are also people that still do it and it causes dramatic Absolutely. consequences. And there's still, uh, I think, about 150, you know, fatal collisions each year that are a result of drink, drink driving. So it's kind of, you know, in response to the, there will always be a workaround. There will always be people that do it, but that's not to say it's not, you know, it's obviously not a not not worth considering because we don't do it very well, do we? we? We tend to go into schools and tell kids not to get run over by adults and we don't actually spend much time at all trying to educate. No, I mean, uh, it is adults. quite scary. My two are nine and 11 and before they could even walk across the road, if I was taking them out in a pram, I would stop and you talk to them and go like look left and right and look for cars you know and listen for car and I am the most relaxed parent apart from when it comes to road safety and they know that that's drilled into them but I was staggered that other parents don't naturally teach that and my daughter would have play dates and we lived in a very very small village at the time where there were very few cars and the kids would come over and play and just run across the road and it's just like as parents as well, we have a responsibility. We can't abdicate it and say schools have to pick it up. They did used to pick it up, but they don't anymore. They just don't. So we all also need to talk about it to our children or our grandchildren. Mm. My grandmother and my mum are terrible crossing roads and jaywalking. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> and and I, I went off at my mum once because we were walking across and she took my daughter across on what was a red man, but it was a green for the cars with mm. no vehicles mm. around. Mm. But I'm you were like, that German parent. I am that you? German parent. <laughs> I where don't I know. go, stop. No, absolutely yeah. not. I'm, I'm rarely, somewhere between I'm, German and British. Well, <laughs> uh, so I, I see I, I, in my job, I work on the other side of things where I know there are traffic engineers there who have, who want your family to wait for 80 seconds mm knowing full well there's no vehicles coming mm. until they give you a green man because it makes the charts look good and it, mm. it gives you traffic flow. So I, I hate the system ultimately. Yeah. So I'm yes, we should I'm wait like for you. a green man. Yeah. But also if if people that, you know, have rigged the system to, to make, you know, crossing the road so unattractive, you know, I've had conversations where people like, we shouldn't put a crossing in there because people might cross the road and it will slow down traffic or it will cost too much to maintain or, or anything like that. And and while we're still having those conversations, I think it's quite hard to get annoyed with people when they want to cross there's, the road I, in I the desire line. We should facilitate that. Nuanced, I mean, we're a bit off topic yeah, here, yeah. Aren't we? but there's <laughs> that slightly more nuanced thing about um, that I always used to use to justify my position vis-a-vis pedestrian red lights mm. and green lights of like, especially in terms of educating kids mm. and bringing them up in the right way, actually use your ears and your eyes, which yeah. is, the, you know, yeah. so don't just trust the light. Yeah. Because mm. if you blindly trust that green light, you've yeah. no idea what the motorist approaching oh, yeah. that crossing is actually his, in, their intent is. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to be both. You? You've, yeah. got to, you've got to kind of like trust the system to a certain oh, yeah. extent, but also bring in your own, yes. your own judgment. Yeah. And if your own judgment at that point says, I, there is no car for th- mm. Half a mile in either direction, I might just nip across the road. I think that's a legitimate approach yeah. as well. Yeah, um, because the system is rigged. You're right. Can Can I just go back and ask you a question here, Adam and, and Polly? I think you you probably have this information at your fingertips as well. But going back to disqualified drivers and terrible incidents, crimes, road mm-hmm. crimes, um, we have a problem in this country, don't we? Of the percentage of cars which are being driven at any given time by disqualified drivers mm. is very high. I don't know what it is. Don't know whether either of you know or what no, the best no, not at the same time. But yeah. in 
in Britain, there's claimed to be around a million, 1.2 million uninsured drivers in the country. And a fun fact, in the postcodes of uninsured drivers, Birmingham has seven of the top 10 postcodes in the country. Well done, Birmingham. That's not great, is it? No. And then my sort of follow-up question to that was, Polly, maybe you know this, in, in terms of road crime, are disqualified drivers overrepresented or can you not say that? No, I mean, certainly not in the cases that I see. Uh, no, actually. No. Most of them do have licences that I see. What we are seeing more of are uninsured drivers, um, probably due to the cost of living crisis more than anything else. And interestingly, going back to your point before about disqualification and making it hard hitting, when this legislation was put in to increase life sentences for dangerous driving, I spoke to quite a few police officers who were actually worried that hit and runs would increase as a result, because people might be afraid of the fact that they could be looking at a life sentence. And certainly we've seen that increase We've seen pedestrians on the pavements being run over, increasing. You know, it's actually quite scary in terms, but no no disqualified drivers or online drivers, no, not seeing that particularly, which probably is because that's one of the easiest things to do. Mm. It probably is that the the licensing is so easy in terms of what's prohibitive is the cost of insurance. Yeah, yeah. I think there is there is some stat, and I don't have it to hand, but that Andy Cox, who we mentioned, gave me, and it was something he did in London where basically looked at the people who got caught for disqualified driving, and those that got caught for it had been caught several times, and they were much more likely to be involved in other aspects of criminality as yeah. well. I don't have the data to hand but it, it was a marker for other other stuff. Other... Even not wearing a seatbelt, yeah. um, he's found in his work and speeding slightly. Because if you're going to be involved in criminal activity, the chances are you're going to do it in every walk of life. We come to the end, and um, we've got one of those episodes where we're just like, God, this is so bad. Yeah, this is. Yeah. What really can bad. we? What can change? What can we do? We bear in mind, you know, with pragmatists, things take a long time to change but what are the things because I, I noticed that road peace have been asking for you know their, their remain and report campaign yeah you know that it seems like there are subtle things around bail, remain and report it aims to have a new law against actually rem- like leaving the scene of a collision and reducing at, like at, that as an um as a as a factor aggregating factor and it, it isn't all- already um because hit and run isn't yeah i mean in terms of when you have a look at that grading it would be considered to be an aggravating factor and there is like an an offense for failure to stop Mm -hmm. um but it's having a look at increasing that because i think that's the backlash of the dangerous driving hit and run and and it's trying to negate that and just come back to me now the limit is 48 hours as well so you could kill somebody leave the scene 24 hours pop into a police station and not be seen to be leaving the scene of a um, of a mm. collision or an accident, yeah. as the law says. But mm. yeah. I refuse to say. Yeah. Well, I well, mean, what, what what can you do? <laughs> was your was... was your question? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's keeping up the dialogue because it was great to see so many people commenting on the M sixty six collision and really thinking, my gosh, this is awful in terms of the lack of sentencing. 
But it's also just being minded that we all have a part to play in terms of making sure people are as safe as possible on the road. It's just taking your own personal responsibility because the more of us that do that, the better chance that we've got of changing the environments on our roads. We could all, you know, we could love people to campaign or join Road Peace, but let's be honest here, what, what have people got time to do? Dash cams, amazing, mm. or, you know, helmet cams, anything like that where you can actually report people. So, for mm. example, in this case where the defendant, he, he wasn't just doing this as a one-off, he's clearly done it repeatedly. If that had been caught on camera and sent into the local police beforehand, could have been prevented maybe. So there's that and then just your own personal responsibility. Just think, just mm. think. It's certainly changed my way of driving. Mm. Educate children, talk to your kids, talk to your grandkids about Road safety. Mm. I think that's all personally we can ask people to do, just be a bit more aware. And if our audience, which I'm just thinking of our audience, I'm thinking of the emails we get from our audience, and it's quite surprising. You know, we have MPs listening, we have campaigners, we have local politicians, people who work at councils and things like that. I'm just thinking of the kind of, for want of a better phrase, the lowest hanging fruit of things that could be changed. So one thing that Road Peace told me was that, you know, we could lobby local police to try and encourage bail conditions to include an interim driving ban, for example, which I don't think is done as a matter of course, but is able to be done, for example. Are there any kind of things that feel like with a bit of push that we could you know, help change I'd, the system I a little think bit? I think speaking on behalf of Calvin, if I may, we've, mm. we've spoken at, at length about the sentencing for the criminal side of things, which is such a huge thing. But actually on the civil side of things, how bereaved unmarried fathers Mm. is treated is absolutely disgusting. A Tory MP, I think, said earlier this year, it was revisited in March or or April of this year. And basically the summary was, if you're not married to the mother, the quality of your love to your child will not be the same as if you were a married father. And in 2022, we are now at the stage where unmarried parents are over 50 percent so we're completely yeah, we're in the dark ages we're living in the dark ages so it's actually called the the fatal accidents act again the mm. word accidents in there there's that terminology and there is the need to change things like reference to illegitimate children Embry, and that's something that actually with a little bit of campaigning if you've got people there that would like to hear more about it please you know we'd we'd love to have that support to change something because that would make a massive amount of difference to bereaved fathers who are just not considered to be worthy of any recognition for their loss. It's awful. Wow. And there was a road justice report, of course, by the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Walking and Cycling, and they had 10 recommendations about ways to improve the justice system and, um, yeah, ending exceptional hardship was one of them. Yeah. Improving understanding of the highway code, the educational piece. Yeah. And there are a number of other things um, in there about ensuring that victims of road collisions were seen as real victims of crime as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Links into is, the support that they, they get. Yeah. yeah. Although something tells me that the level of support you get for any form of crime is probably not where it needs to be either. No. Well, uh, 
thank you very much. I think we'll leave you there. I mean, thanks uh, an awful lot for coming down, Polly. I gather you're you're coming down to the West End, aren't you? Yes. Next next weekend. Grease lightning. (laughs) Grease, which would probably be a slightly easier time than you've had on this podcast. It's been a really interesting discussion. It's been quite bleak at times, but also it's great to feel your sort of positivity and the support that you're obviously giving Calvin. And um, I think from all of us, pass on on our best to Calvin and his family because, um, yeah. Yeah. The strength that he has campaigning He's amazing. in this, in this they all are, environment. And yeah, if the more the people can do to support him and others yeah. about getting, I know it sounds, you know, like obvious and basic, but the more people talking about this, like you said, is going to hopefully make that difference. And Ropies do amazing work mm. in this area, don't they? The Absolutely. Charity, yeah. yeah. And Calvin, I'm sure he's going to be creating his own foundation in terms of, in the name of Frankie and Neve which will very much be focused on road safety education. So I'm sure we'd love to kind of link in with you guys in the future. All right. Splendid. Thank you, Polly. And um, yeah, ne- next time we record, maybe we'll do jaywalking. <laughs> maybe we'll have a six-part special on jaywalking. <laughs> uh, you've been listening to Streets Ahead. Our editor has been Claire Mansell. Let us know what you think at Pod Streets Ahead. Rate us, review us and share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.